0: I actually didn't know that you game. You said that you're a gamer,
1: right? Uh, I mean, I think everyone in our generation has been a gamer over time because we grew up with the Nintendo and Super Nintendo. So I think, you know, from here on in, gaming blew up to this massive industry to what it is now. But in earlier days, you know, it was just stuff you did at home.
0: What are you playing um, right now, though?
1: At the moment, uh, for those who are familiar with all those uh what are they called billboards around sydney welcome to hell diablo 4 what oh you're a
0: diablo player well i don't
1: mind i don't mind an action rpg um i'm not a huge fan of diablo 3 Mm. but you know it's kind of fun because you can run around with your friends and you know do some squad-based stuff (laughs) so it's good but i mean you can do that with counter-strike right Uh,
0: yeah i mean counter-strike is much more simpler than uh Something like uh, Diablo or, I don't know, World of Warcraft RPG. What, are, what are RPGs <clears> I can think about? World of Warcraft, is that an RPG? Yeah.
1: Yeah, RPG. yeah, Very similar action RPG, but I think mm. it's because it offers a little bit more of an in-depth, not in-depth, uh, time sync, because then you get progression over time as you develop skills and whatnot. Yeah. But anyway. Dang. Like, the... the it, Different folks for different different strokes for different folks, I should say. Mm. Because, you know, I don't mind it in a, a casual game of, like, Battlefront or, a, you know, a shooter. Because you just pick it up and then drop it when you're, when you're done, if you need some stress relief. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I, for some reason, like, have you mentioned that you're a gamer? I had no idea.
1: I don't think we've really spoken about it online. Yeah. But we've talked about how you only play Counter-Strike. Yeah, that's
0: right. <laughs> it's the GOAT. It's the GOAT FPS of all time. Yeah. It is. Did I just it say is. the goat of all time?
1: Yes, <laughs> the goat all time. it's the goat's, the goatest of the goats.
0: Tautology, <laughs> I think is the term in philosophy, tautology. Um, crazy. So good to have you back on the show. Thank you for having are you, me. Uh, is this going to be a regular thing or are we going to see you in the next nope. like eight months?
1: Uh, I don't know. It depends on how many episodes you do.
0: <laughs> oh, hey, I, I guess you're going to be keen to do Ahsoka, right?
1: Yeah. I yeah, feel yeah. like
0: I'm not very qualified to do Ahsoka.
1: I think you need to catch <laughs> up on Clone Wars, like I've been saying for the past two years.
0: <laughs> um,
1: but you know yeah. what? I, I'd have to go back and still watch things because, you know, there's so much content being put out, trying to remember all the finer details. You know, the people who say they love things going to get their cards redrawn or withdrawn because you forget little details. Because everything's so deep cut nowadays, right? Yeah.
0: yeah. It's, it's weird. You know, actually, out, out of all the... Um, uh, the abundance, or let's say, overabundance of content being put out by Disney, um, I think the the better one out of all the kind of too much content is probably Star Wars. Like I'm, I'm sort of inclined to think that Star Wars is just a little bit better. But then that's not saying much. I mean, because I don't think the Star Wars universe, the way they're developing it with all the TV series they're putting out. Um, perhaps the lack of movies, or is there too many movies? I'm not really sure. I feel like there's just so many TV series. Um, the last movie was, what was the last movie?
1: The last movie was, um, Rise of Skywalker.
0: It was, right? There was nothing yeah. else after that, right? No prequels after that? No. Yeah. Nah. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of Disney Plus series, but I just feel like the Disney Plus series are a slightly better than what Marvel's doing, but then... That's a whole different
1: conversation. But, <laughs>
0: But then also, like what Marvel's doing, is that they're pro- they're producing a lot of films and a lot of series series at the same time, whereas Star Wars is not mm. quite doing that. So, mm. if you would ask me, what's my first impression? As in, like, what's the best so far? Lowercase B, it's probably Star Wars. Like, I'm sort of mm. inclined to think that. But then I look, I'm like, well, I like Loki. I kind of like Hawkeye. Um, mm. Mm, not really sure if I like Secret Invasion. <laughs> Okay. I think it's okay, um, but i have I have quite a few issues with it, which is sitting on the shoulders of the major issues of the MCU. Um, um, yeah, and with Star Wars, like my fondest memory is like the last thing I saw, which was Mandalorian. Mm. I haven't even seen season three.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, season three
0: is it good? Like people are saying it's quite good
1: it depends on what you're expecting. Like, I think I kind of knew what was going to happen and I was somewhat right, not completely, but you know, they are developing the greater universe. Mm. Um, And then if you've been following like star Wars day and the announcement, so, you know, Dave Filoni, who's kind of like George Lucas's protege has been helming and with um, Favreau have been helming like a lot of the star Wars universe. So the last star Wars day, they announced, they announced that Dave Filoni will be doing one of the new, Star Wars films. And this is something that people have been waiting for for a long time because after uh, J.J. Abrams and what's his face?
0: Rian Johnson.
1: Rian Johnson. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, Destroyed the sequels. (laughs) We'll leave that there. Um, Everyone's been waiting for Filoni to get a piece.
0: Have they said what he's going to be doing?
1: (laughs) Excuse me. Yes, he's doing the culmination of the Mandalorian, which is going to Would I believe tie in with Ahsoka.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So this is now all taking place in the same time period. Mm. So Mandalorian with Ahsoka, and it makes sense because they've already crossed paths. Um, But it only makes sense because Dave Filoni basically created Ahsoka. So if that's why everything that Dave has touched since Clone Wars has been well received by the fan base. And the thing is that Dave Filoni is so informed on every little detail in Star Wars, that he would say, like, this is not what the character would do or they wouldn't wear this. So he's really, like, been under George's wing for such a long time that, you know, the the fans really trust Filoni. Sure, some of the some of the episodes of Book of Boba Fett or, you know, other things haven't been well received, but that may have been out of their choice or out of their hands. Um, and that could be up a little bit higher. I went name names mm. <laughs> in the mouse house. But, yeah, so...
0: I think oh. fans
1: are waiting for that.
0: Um, I know we're going to get into Oppenheimer review. I'm pretty sure that's what people are here <laughs> for. But like, like before we get into that, though, before we get into that, um, do you like? Do you think? Here, here, here's my maybe not impression, but here's what I've been thinking about with the Star Wars universe. Um, I feel like it's stuck in this um, purgatory mm. where we're not moving. Beyond the original content, we're not moving past it. Like we're we're stuck in this area where it's like after the prequels and um, before the late <laughs> not the was but you know before the uh, the Skywalker story. Mm. We're stuck in this area, and do you, do you think we're like permanently stuck here? Because people are enjoying the content. Now, I'm not sort of complaining about the quality content. I'm just sort of observing that we're stuck in this area where the stories seem to be quite good for the most part. Mm-hmm. And I can't really see that we're going to venture beyond the Skywalker story and explore new stories. Because everything is still so, so well connected to effectively the Star- Skywalker story, right?
1: Sure. Um, I guess what they've done with the prequels is that they've um, planted so many seeds with so many different characters that they could basically create their own universes within the Star Wars universe, if that makes sense. Mm. And I feel like they've been doing that. They've been doing it with Ahsoka. I believe that after, like, the whole Jedi Knight thing, they wanted to focus on a bounty hunter, and that's why they brought in the Mandalorian. Mm. Um, But then it's a very Disney thing to have the whole, like, you know, kid and parent kind of vibe. So... uh,
0: It it, it just feels like like all of it is just so predicated on the Skywalker story. Like, all of it's sort of leading up to you know, the bad guys being the Empire sure. and <laughs> Skywalker being the good guy. Yeah. And, and, like, everything they're doing is kind of leading up to that point. It just seems so short-sighted and, like, like for better expression, kind of boring mm-hmm. because, like, we know where it's going to end. Um, mm-hmm. Like, my point is, like, there's only so far you can go with prequels, right? Like, sure. I don't think you could do pre-stories forever. I, I think you need to kind of go beyond the Skywalker story and create something new.
1: Yeah, so they. I know what you're saying. So they are, I guess what they're kind of doing now is, as if you've seen the movies and the prequels, obviously Ahsoka's not in the movies and she was introduced later into the Clone Wars, which then, if you've watched all the Clone Wars without spoiling a river, so you can actually watch it and enjoy it, is that it had its own little timeline of story. So when I watched and when my friend watched the final arc of Clone Wars, the last four episodes, he said to me, this is better than the last three sequels put together. And I watched it and I agreed Then mm. that was, pre- that's something pretty big to say. Okay. Um, but that being said, so once they kind of tie this off now, cause once they finished Clone Wars, I went to rebels and rebels, as I mentioned to you before, and those who haven't seen it ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger, but it seems like now they're going to address that, you know, So, once that culminates together with the Mandalorian, they'll probably finish off that arc. But in addition to that, with the new three movies coming out, or three new movies coming out, one is focused on the Mandalorian, one is focused on the High Republic era, so pre-Skywalker, and there's going to be one which is supposedly bringing the Jedi Order, rebuilding the Jedi Order. So I do agree they are stuck a little bit here, but they should take... Some opportunities or some risks in creating new characters that people can fall in love with. They did that with Rebels because people who coming from Clone Wars had to readjust to a whole set of new set of new characters that they weren't familiar with and get to love them. And I think everyone's initial take was that it is quite juvenile, but once you get to know the characters, they grow on you. It becomes their own kind of dysfunctional family. Crazy. That, welcome to my TED Talk.
0: Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. um, as crazy as that may seem, we should probably close the can um <laughs> Star Wars stuff. And create a marker here so then like I can indicate to people that maybe when you wanna get to the review, jump to this point of the podcast. Yeah. You
1: can call that banter, for Star Wars banter. Star Wars banter.
0: All right, so um we're here to review and recap Oppenheimer. Um welcome to those who have never been to the podcast before. Um great to have you here you know you're in amongst millions of listeners or not really but um, you are one person
1: of so you are, you're potentially
0: potentially millions of listeners <laughs> um this is the Logical cool podcast and um this is our 58th episode and what better way to oh uh, actually i really wanted to crown this um this review with uh episode number 60 but we're 58 so deal with it um and what's weird is that we've been doing the Legacy series, which has, has been on hold since Nate left, <laughs> um, and we still haven't finished the Legacy series. This kind of ties into the Legacy series, and for those of you guys who are not familiar with the Legacy series, we did this thing where we focus on one director and review and recap the entire their entire film career, basically. Um, and we did that with Christopher Nolan. We went from Memento all the way up to Dunkirk. Oh, sorry, Tet. No, yeah, sorry, Dunkirk. Um, and then we went to do Tenet, but um, Nath, who was doing the Legacy series with me, he moved overseas, logistics got in the way, life got in the way, and that's a little bit on hold. So we've skipped Tenet for now, and <laughs> we're, we're up to Oppenheimer. Um, and this is a film that I think he's been working on a like, very similar fashion Um Sounds like somebody's having fun in the street over your side. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's very similar fashion to what he's done with his previous big films, such as like Inception, Interstellar, um, and also Dunkirk, um, which is he, he, he's had these films that he's been sort of ruminating, working on, thinking about, um, researching, all that kind of stuff for like numerous amount of years, right? For example, Inception was like a 10-year um idea that came into fruition in 2010 um tenet was very similar i think tenet he actually started thinking about that concept back in memento which was 1999 i think is me- when memento came out or 2000 somewhere around there um and with oppenheimer he's been thinking about this story for about less than 10 years i can't remember what he said in the interview Something like that. I remember him saying that it wasn't as much as what he thought about with *Tenet* and *Inception*. But um, he—the point is, like—he's the kind of director that wants to um, really bring an idea that he's been working on for years. Um, That's just his method. Like he's—he does research, he does writing, he does rewriting drafts, and all that kind of stuff. It's just astonishing what this guy can actually do. Like people—people have heard of. Christopher Nolan and how great he is. But I don't think, I think there's a small amount of people that don't realize how much work and intelligence he puts into his scripts. Um, sorry, not into his scripts, but into the entire production. Like it's it's hard. Like when I think about this movie Oppenheimer, this guy, he done everything that we saw, right? He done all the research Like I I can't imagine how much work goes into the research for this to get the facts correct. I'm sure there's some like sort of creative embellishments in the film, but I don't think it's too far from what the actual events are. Um, He does all of that and he writes the damn script for this. Like, (laughs) and, and not just writing the script, you know, writing the script is so hard in and of itself, but to make it relevant and engaging and, um understood for us kind of dumb people in the audience that just blows my mind like if if that's the the way that you want to critique and give uh a score for this film then i think that's fair because of the the sheer amount of work now um uh and i want to get into a lot of this when we get into the recap um but it's just the, the technical prowess of this guy is just unbelievable. He surprises me every single time. Mm. Um, do you have a favourite Christopher Nolan film? You can't say Oppenheimer That's... if it's Oppenheimer.
1: <laughs> no, it's not It's not Oppenheimer. I mean, I guess... I mean, The Prestige left a lasting impression.
0: Mm. Such a good movie. I mean, that
1: was... This is like this is me being a a youthful person and not being that much like into films, just watching it for what it is. Mm -hmm. But still remembering that many, many years later, um, like I want to go rewatch it now. Now that I've you know been a little bit more associated with Nolan's work, Um, Mm -hmm. but you know, like even the retelling of you know Batman Begins or Batman um, and the Dark Knight, it's hard to. I mean that each each of these movies has their own little talents. Yep. So I think you know, you just have to appreciate each one. But yeah, um I think I still come back to the Dark Knight. Mm. I mean it's it's very easy for someone to approach. Yeah. If you're familiar with Batman. If you're not, it's still I think a very good movie for what it is. Yep. I agree. Yeah.
0: I agree. The Dark Knight is pretty is phenomenal. What about yours? <laughs> it's it's tough eh. I, I think what I want to do, one of my goals by the end of this recording is come up with ranking Nolan's films.
1: Ooh, yeah, from ranking the MCU to ranking Nolan. Mm,
0: yeah, yeah, the MCU is a bit of a tiresome one because it's, it's so large, but um, the Nolan ranking would be a little bit easier just because there is just less movies. Um, yeah, but it's it's also it's it's hard it's difficult in the sense that all of his films are good. Mm. You know, I don't believe any of his films are bad. <laughs> okay. Like all of his films, they tip way beyond the fifty percent mark. Mm-hmm. Um, even according to Rotten Tomatoes, like his lowest-rated film on Rotten Tomatoes is surprisingly Prestige.
1: Yeah, and like we said yesterday offline, I think that's it's a it's a sign of the times. It's like probably uh, a lot of new kids coming along and reviewing it and go, this isn't as good. It's, 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 it's weird. weird. It's These guys are Star cracked. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, this isn't that good. Like Star Wars isn't that good. Sorry, we came back to Star Wars, but. You know. <laughs>
0: But yeah, these you know. these people are just like they're like high or something. They're, they're beyond themselves. I can't believe it. Um, but yeah, the the rating I think for prestige is like seventy six percent. It's still very high, but mm. that's his lowest rated film, which is really weird. Uh, uh,
1: admittedly, on the on the flip side, I didn't love Tenet, Even though I knew what it was going to do, mm. I just I didn't. I just tried to. It was ended up with headaches. So
0: yeah, yeah.
1: So I don't know if that was catered to the general audience hmm. or that the general audience received it well. What are, what are your thoughts?
0: Tenet. Um, oh, my personal thoughts on Tenet? Or, yeah. Um I liked it. I didn't love Tenet. I like it. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. It's got a little bit of rewatchability. Um, mm. um, it's entertaining. Like the concept that he unfolds is entertaining. Um, mm. But I, I like it. I didn't sort of come away thinking that was the best Nolan film. Um right. I came away thinking that the ideas are massive, um, awesome scale. Well, obviously the technical aspects of any of the Nolan films are amazing. In this one, he steps it up a little bit more. I think a lot of the images just look beautiful on big screen. Um didn't get to see it on 70 mil. Um but yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. And it was really cool to see Robert Patterson in a Christopher Nolan film. I think he's just the perfect type of actor to have in a Nolan film. Mm. It was really cool. I really want to see him do more with Nolan, um, but yeah, it was okay. It was good.
1: Did you did you cover his trademarks in the Legacy series, like Nolan's trademarks?
0: As in, like the same amount of actors, same crew.
1: I mean, that that can be a thing. That's that's a good point, though. Mm. Um, I do like I do like producers that reuse the same cast because you know yep. that they they deliver well. Yep. Um, no, I just look. I just stumbled upon IMDb. IMDB. And it says that uh, begins his movies and introduces his main characters with a close-up of their hands performing an action or usually a flashback or piece of scene from the middle or ending of the movie.
0: Mm, okay. That might be true except with the exception of maybe the Dark Knight. The Dark Knight starts off with the bag sequence and the first shot is, um, mm-hmm. is a helicopter establishing shot that tracks into the building.
1: Building, uh, yeah.
0: And then we never revisit that scene and it's not close-ups of hands or anything like that. Um, with Tenet, what was Tenet's opening scene? I can't remember hmm, I have to think about that one
1: yeah I'll have to it's it's Sorry, It says usually it doesn't say all the time, oh okay, so <laughs> I think
0: he's wrong, man. they need to learn from the logical podcast
1: wrong. <laughs> but there's apparently he initially directed Batman so he get funding to support inception, oh. Okay. that makes a lot of sense. That's a yeah. smart business
0: move. That could, yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, yeah, with Oppenheimer, let's just talk a little bit about this film, and then we'll go into yeah. some impressions, and then we'll get into the recap. Um sure. So this movie was released only a few days ago, July twentieth. Um, had a surprising budget of a hundred million dollars. Are you surprised by that? I'm, I'm surprised I'm by that.
1: Little, I'm a little surprised, but you
0: know, yeah, like super surprised. I'm like shit. Like, did all that money just go to the actors? No. <laughs> Well, no, but I, I know that's like completely false. But the thing is like, when you look at the, when you just look at the production itself, I'm like, this looks so expensive, but maybe that's just the, the ingenious and skill of Christopher Nolan. He knows how to make good quality films visually. Mm. He's just a visual genius, this guy. So hundred million dollars can only imagine that all these actors, they just kind of didn't care about the paycheck. They just want, to be in a Nolan film um, because there is a lot of actors in here. And I'm probably not going to go through the entire cast um, because there's up to about 50 well-known actors in this film. Um, So I'm going to go through the main, um, maybe not even the main cast. I mean, the main cast is like four people, right? And then everybody Mm. else that is also quite famous, they're all like either one line or five lines or no lines, which is Mm. amazing. That's just awesome to me. Um, so written and directed by Christopher Nolan, produced by Emma Thomas, which is his wife, um, known as one of the best producers working today. Um, it's a massive star cast of Killian Murphy, who plays the main character of J. Robert Oppenheimer, Emily Blunt playing Kitty Oppenheimer, Matt Damon playing Lizzie Groves, Robert Downey Jr., Tony Stark playing Lewis Strauss, <laughs> Alden... I feel like Robert Down Jr. needs to change his name to Tony Stark Rivere, like legally change it. <laughs> it's like we're never gonna call you Robert anymore. We're gonna call you Tony. Alden um, Eric uh, I never know how to pronounce this guy's
1: name. I'm assuming that's German, right?
0: Maybe. Um, but I never know how to pronounce his last name. And I've heard it in interviews and I still forget. Um, but I just always remember him from um, the Kingsman, <laughs> the guy from the Kingsman. Right. Um, We've got Scott Grimes playing Council, Jason Clark, Aussie actor playing Roger Robb, uh, Kurt Collar playing Thomas Morgan, Tony Goldwyn playing uh, Gordon Gray, uh, John Gowans playing Ward Evans, Mackin Blair playing Lord, uh, Lord? Lloyd Garrison James D'Arcy playing Patrick Blackett, Kenneth Branagh playing Niels Bohr, uh, Harry Gro, Gro playing Senator McGee, Gregor Jabara, or maybe that's Barra, right? Maybe it's
1: Barra. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce that. Maybe
0: it's a silent J. Uh, chairman Magnuson, <laughs> Magnuson, Ted King playing Magnuson. 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 Uh, Magnuson, I'm sure. okay. Ted King playing Senator Bartlett, uh, Tim Decay, which I remember from Suits, who plays uh, Senator Pastor. Wait, is it Suits? No, sorry, it's not Suits. It's another TV series I'm thinking about. Tim Decay, who plays uh, Senator Pastor, and then finally we have Stephen Huska playing Senator Scott. Now, a famous actor I haven't mentioned in this, and I I don't think he's even in like the IMDb cast list. I think, and I don't think he was in any of He's definitely not in any of the promotional material. I think it was all supposed to be an Easter egg which is Gary Oldman playing Truman, President Truman.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Crazy, yeah. I, I, like, I,
1: I was sitting there going, like, who is this I was this wondering actor? if
0: anybody recognized him. Like, I recognized him str- as soon as he started talking. Well, not and soon. Like, actually, like, he does a good job at changing the accent a little bit. But um, on the second is shot he, of his face, I was like, yeah, that's Gary Oldman.
1: <laughs> right. His eyes, yeah. I was like, I know this guy's eyes. Yeah. But, okay.
0: I was going I was going to say, Commissioner Good.") <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so he's I guess he's intentionally supposed to be an E- series, because I don't think he's in any other casting lists or anything. I don't think he's credited anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, interesting, eh. with uh, a runtime of three hours on the dot um, this movie, I, actually, that's incorrect. Um, I don't have a box of his in there because I don't know if there's any point to do that. It's only been out a couple of days. Um, the Rotten Tomatoes score at the moment, as it sits, it's 93% from the critics and 1% higher for the audience rating. Um, the general consensus from the critics at the moment is, this is according to Rotten Tomatoes, Oppenheimer marks another engrossing achievement from Christopher Nolan that benefits from Murphy's Tour de France performance and stunning visuals. Um, and a quick synopsis here. Um, this is also from run Tomatoes. During World War II, Le- Lieutenant General Leslie Groves Jr. appoints physicist J. Robert Heimer. Isn't he a, um, not just a physicist, he's a, what am I thinking? No. <laughs> What's the type of physics that he's he's studying? In Europe, quantum. Quantum. Yeah, wouldn't he be a quantum physicist, or is is it just generally a physicist?
1: You're asking the wrong. Yeah, guy. I know what I mean.
0: Anyway, physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer to work on the top secret Manhattan Project. Oppenheimer and a team of scientists spend years developing and designing the atomic bomb. Their work comes to fruition on July 16th, 1945, as they witness the world's first nuclear explosion, forever changing the course of history. Now, first impressions, JC. What did you think mm. of the film?
1: I was thinking about how to word this, and, you know, I think we spoke mm. yesterday. I've had my thoughts settle. I still think it's brilliant and still a little bit heavy, but I know if I watch it a second time, it's not going to have the as heavy of an impact. Mm. So I'm still going to, it is a, it's a heavy topic. Um, it's well executed. That is all for now.
0: Oh, okay. a few words. <laughs> keeping
1: yeah, keeping it short.
0: Um, my first impressions of this is I think it's a technical masterpiece. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant movie, so well told, and I don't think anybody would be able to tell it this well and this riveting. Um, I just think if anybody else tried to tell it it would probably be quite, quite boring. (laughs) Mm. Um, for a film that is dialogue heavy, jumping in between different timelines, which is the Usual, if you're familiar with Nolan films, it's the usual Nolan fashion where he likes to just make it his way of engaging the audience is by jumping to different time periods, um, uh, without confusing the audience. I I know that people do get confused a lot with Nolan films, um, but he, he does a very good job at indicating which part is like might be, uh, which part of the timeline this may be. For example, in this they deliberately make um, marks on where they are, um, what time period they're in. For example, like when they mention when Hitler died, right? Like he, mm-hmm. one of the guys actually mentions uh, Hitler has just, it's been reported that Hitler's uh, committed suicide. Mm-hmm. I was like, ah, cool. I, I know where that time period is. <laughs> so I know mm-hmm. where we are. And that, that might've been like at the halfway point of the film or maybe just after, mm-hmm. yeah, just after the Trinity test. So... Yeah, I I think for the most part, Nolan does a good job at indicating where we are in the time period. Um, I think this movie is efficient. There's great performances. Oscar, even though I don't care about Oscars these days, but the Oscar-worthy performances. um, All the supporting actors, especially Robert Downey Jr., done a great job. Um, It was just, it was amazing. I really, really enjoyed it from that aspect. Is it my favorite Nolan movie? Probably not. Um, Does it have rewatchability? I don't think it has rewatchability. It's not really that kind of film where I'm like, oh, I'm so inspired, I want to go back and watch it again. It's because the subject matter kind of weighs it down too much. Um, I watched it again because I just wanted to watch it again. (laughs) And I think with any Nolan film, you want to have... Um, a couple of goes at it because he gets you to think a lot. This movie in particular is very thought provoking and sort of first time I watched it, I was, I was left kind of in shock, like a, a weird feeling of like inspiration and shock and fear, knowing that we've kind of, we're kind of doomed almost. Um, Cause this kind of plays into where we are in the 21st century. It's like, you know, he started a chain reaction essentially that inspires certain ideas. For example, AI now. AI is pretty unhinged right now and there's no regulations around it. Um, this could be like our version of the atomic bomb. So yeah, pretty scary. <laughs> but I think it's just awesome. I think the movie is very, very, very good. Um, yeah, so that's my first impression. If I was to like think about one critique, and this might not be a popular critique, and I'm probably going to think about more critiques as we go through the recap, that one creature was, I think it's just a little bit too long. I think we could have shaved maybe 10, 15 minutes. However, if you were to ask me where to shave it, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea where. I just feel like for a film that is 98%, like give or take 98% dialogue, um, it, it doesn't actually give you room to breathe. Like there's not any point in the film where I feel like I can relax or take a moment to just absorb information. Uh, I think the movie is pretty relentless. It just, the editing in this and the pacing in this is quick. It's like super fast, maybe with the exception of the beginning of the film, but yeah, it was like, it was, it was a lot. I actually couldn't like once the credits started, I was like, Oh, okay, cool. Um can relax now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think I think the ending had a little bit
1: less te- no, sorry not tension it eased up a little bit on the pacing because you knew everything was coming to a head yep. but you're right a lot of the movie was quite tense in terms of it's pan- pacing and trying to keep up with everything and as we mentioned at the end of the at the end of the movie like I had trouble hearing some of the dialogue and in, in, in that I, could, I missed some essential probably pieces of information but Like, I think that's where replayability can come in if you want to go back and listen. Mm. And this is why, like, I'm I'm a subtitles person usually, but obviously you can't get that in cinemas all the time. So, you know, um, if it's worthwhile, like, if you want to go back and listen to all the finer detail, like, you can get the general gist of the movie. I mean, it's not that hard. Mm. But sometimes they say certain things, and if it's a dialogue-heavy movie and you miss that, then sometimes you might miss nuances. So...
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The the dialogue thing has always been a problem with um Nolan's films and I understand why he probably doesn't want to do ADR um because he just wants to keep that audio quite raw because ADR is like when you hear them side by side when you hear ADR and then a film with no ADR like mm. one just sounds like yeah they've recorded it somewhere else instead of <laughs> instead of that's the footage that we get from the filming. Um mm. And that's never been a problem, obviously. Like, ADR is kind of needed in some sequences. And sometimes, um, Nolan's just the guy that doesn't want to compromise his craft. He's like, no, nah, I'm going to edit and show the audience what the actor said on the day. <laughs> it's like, okay, cool. <laughs> um, okay, so let's get into the recap because the recap is going to be chunky because the movie's very, very chunky. If it's your first time listening to the podcast, the recap is just us talking or walking through the entire plot. Um, we interject in between acts one, two, and three on our views and our opinions, um, which may or may not sway after we sort of walk through the recap. We use it as a analytical tool to really comb out what we enjoyed and maybe remind us of the things that we did enjoy and didn't enjoy. Um, By the end of it, we'll give a rating out of 10 um, and then just wrap it up from there. Cool. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's get into, oh, that's not a nice transition, right? Here we go. This sounds more like a Nolan transition. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. So starting off at the beginning, we have a young, brilliant J. Robert Alperhyper grapples with homesickness and anxiety at the Cavendish Laboratory under. Patrick Blackheart uh, demanding Tudor for whom he leaves a poisoned apple. Wait, okay. So first, d- did you find that super weird that he poisoned, like he put cyanide in the apple to poison his Tudor? Did you find that like super strange? Even though it wasn't like, the Tudor that picked up the apple, it was mm. um, Kenneth Brada's character.
1: So what I what I picked up from this particular section was that when he was getting grilled by the gray board is that he talked about him being homesick and emotionally immature. And I think this is meant to highlight his peak of emotional immaturity of like, Oh, I'm angry about being vilified because his, his tutor kind of said, Oh, you can't come to the lecture. Right. Yeah. So you have to clean this up. So that's why he was emotionally mature, reacted in ways like, I'm going to poison your apple instead. So that's crazy.
0: I he knows like- that he's going to kill him. <laughs>
1: Yeah. yeah, but that's why you know he, he realizes later he 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 tracks back and tries to redeem himself. So well,
0: he he, he yeah. only does that because Kenneth Branagh is the one that picks up the apple and not the Tudor.
1: Well, I don't think he knows Kenneth Branagh is there, right? But then he realizes actions are gonna can potentially hurt someone else that he yep. intended, other than he intended. Yeah. So yeah, that
0: yeah, was crazy. I didn't know what to make of it. I was like, "What? That's what is this scene about?" <laughs>
1: mm. And
0: I, and I think it's probably. Yeah, it's it's an insight into the moral dilemma that he that is not well, is, but the moral dilemma that J. J. Robert Arbenheimer faces, because mm. we we see a lot of that later in the film when he's he's struggling. He has this internal and psychological battle uh, with mm. like whether he did something right or he did something wrong. He's not really sure. Mm. Like he believes that it's wrong to kill people, but he's trying to obfuscate the issue by saying that it wasn't my fault. I just mm. created the tool. I yeah, didn't. I usage. didn't say use it, which is an interesting um, uh, moral inquiry. So, um, I think the whole sign at Apple thing was was indicative of how he sees the world, or like how he sees ethics, I suppose. And um, mm. yeah, it's it, it was just it was just so interesting and kind of jarring. I was like, oh. is this how he gets the Mm. idea that he wants to kill people, but he's not a person that wants to kill people. But I I also thought the, um, the poignant part of that moment was that, um, this is a film that's not going to like glorify, uh, war. And it's it's not a film that's going to glorify someone like J. Robert Oppenheimer. You know, Mm. he's not going to be a hero. He's going to be like, not even an anti-hero. He's just a dude that Christopher Nolan decided to observe because through his eyes, um, we get to see what's beneath the surface, which is pretty interesting. Um, After completing his PhD in physics at the University of Gottingen... He returns to the United States, driven by the absence of research on quantum physics. He starts teaching at the University of California, Berkeley, while also dedicating time to the California Institute of Technology. Along the way, he encounters significant figures like Ernest Lawrence, the 1939 Nobel Prize winner, who emphasizes the importance of practical applications. Gene Tatlock, a member of the Communist Party USA, with whom he has an on-and-off romantic relationship until her eventual suicide and biologist Catherine Poonig, whom he later marries. Um, So uh, the beginning of this film, um, actually, like, not not even the... Sorry, the first few frames of this film, it shows this really beautiful shot of, like, droplets, you know, raindrops on a puddle, um, and you see a frame of... Maybe what you were actually saying before about the IMDb trademarks, which is like mm. the close-up of his face—you um, you, you gaze and glare into his, his pupils and the, all that kind of stuff. But then it jumps straight to post-Trinity project, which I—you um, don't know this at like for sure because it's you know um, Nolan so well known for cold opening, so you have no idea where you are in the timeline. Um, mm-hmm. But he's in that um, that room. Where they're interrogating him. Um, and that's all after the Trinity project. So we start the film essentially at the end of the Trinity project, but then we come back to it when we um we come to it come back to it pretty quick when we go into the university parts of the film. Um and then it becomes a little bit more linear in that sense. Um so I I thought that um the things that we're learning about the character right in the beginning, especially in the first acts, like Act One and Two, <clears throat> we're learning a lot about how much of a genius he is. Um, how I was surprised by how he wasn't socially awkward. I think he kind of was pretty good at social. You know, for, for somebody of that um, intelligent prestige, <laughs> you always think that they're kind of awkward. Like when we meet some of the other scientists, especially that guy there. That gets like fed up with um, Leslie Groves, mm. you know, um, Matt Damon's character. Like he feels like a nerdy kind of, mm. um, I don't know, yeah, like a and not antisocial, but just like a socially awkward dude. Um, I thought that Oppenheimer was going to be a little bit like that, but he's not. He's someone that shows that he can care about things. Shows that he wants to encompass everybody else's views. He's he wants to position himself as kind of a neutralist when it comes to politics. Um, Mm. so the, he has these likable traits, which I wasn't expecting. I was expecting him to be kind of, um, a recluse. He is a recluse, but like an introverted recluse. Who's very silent Mm. about a lot of stuff, who doesn't like to divulge into too many social activities or anything. And especially being a womanizer. So the things Mm. that we learn about him, um, was kind of surprising. Um,
1: did you, I mean, could you, could you have seen him as someone like more like a psychopathic scientist?
0: I well? thought he was going to be like a sociopath, mm. you know? Yeah. So a little bit psycho, but very sociopathic, but he was kind of the opposite of that. He was more, he was more of a guy that was, you could build some empathy for him. You could actually like connect with him on a empathetic level. Um, Yeah, it was, it was kind of fascinating. And I think it's good to. I guess it's a good choice for someone like Chris Nolan to choose a character like this to, um, to see a pretty devastating event in our history. Like this movie could have simply just been about the atomic bomb, and various characters, and not focused solely on one character. Um, one of the interviews actually all the interviews i was watching robert Downey jr was so ecstatic about the fact that he's never read a script where it was written in the first person it's always you know written in the third person like uh, this character mo- moves into the room meets this character blah, blah blah but apparently when they're reading the script they're saying i walk into the room i interact with this person i start saying this and or and he was pretty like like an struck about it. <laughs> so but what we see in the film is very much a huge character study on Oppenheimer, which I think is a smart move. It's a good way, a creative way to um, tell the story.
1: It's definitely got more of a personal touch. You know, I think you're, you're right about this movie being told in this way by Nolan wouldn't be able to be redone in the same fashion unless... You know, I can foresee someone else, like maybe another writer is saying it like, oh, it's a race to like till the bomb goes off kind of thing to mm. launch and it's like an action movie. But, you know, this is more personal and it, it does have a lot more depth in between the characters and the relationships they have. Yeah. So I think it's helped really well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um Flo- uh, Florence Pugh. it's Florence Pugh? Yeah. She's the, she plays the character Gene Tetlock, right? I believe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah correct um it was interesting the role that she plays i mean i think she does a really good job at these kind of dramatic roles in general so it wasn't Mm -hmm. too surprising but um she was you know one of the few famous actors that just didn't have a lot to do um her playing the mistress or whatever um i didn't understand too much why and this this might have been a creative um direction on uh, Nolan's part is that I don't understand too much as to why she was the way she were like it was do you think that that's a character that she decided that I was going to play the character like this you know someone who is um, very emotional but is detached from being emotional with someone like Oppenheimer you know the, this the fact that she was like oh. dismissive of like flowers and all these beautiful niceties you know um, I didn't Every time there's this type of character, characterization for a character, it's leading to something bigger in the story. Right. Mm. But she's it, <laughs> the, the way I sort of saw it was like Florence Pugh was given this role to play, you know, the not even the mistress because he wasn't even like dating anyone at the time, you know, given this role to be the love interest for Robert Oppenheimer. And that was about it. And so she would have just been like, look, I'm just going to make her this kind of sassy girl. (laughs) Um, And it's kind of an interesting trait when it's got to do with how they connect. And, you know, he, he he was a guy that didn't really care. She didn't want the flowers um, because he probably understood that this is what she's emotionally going through. Um, She wants something else. So she wants, she wants the commitment, but then she doesn't want the commitment. And he was, kind of understanding that or trying at least trying to understand it um Mm. and i just think it's something that florence would have been like i'm just gonna roll with it because it's maybe gonna make my my job a little bit more interesting (laughs) as opposed to just being a love interest i just thought it was like odd because usually that type of stuff leads to something bigger it's like stuff that you would see in a romantic love story you know Mm. that eventually develops into something quite cool but
1: I mean, in in, in a serious, it it being in a serious light, the whole general gist of the movie, there are these little moments or highlights of little comedic aspects. Mm. So maybe that was thrown in there. Maybe she threw it in there or maybe it was a a trademark of Jean Tatlock where she didn't like flowers and then maybe for other reasons, but we didn't get to understand that. Um, But I do believe like that was thrown in there for some conditioning, but also
0: true. Yes
1: importance of timeline because then you see later in the film in the later act you see him holding flowers you know it's immediately for her Mm. so yeah yeah
0: yeah. i I guess it's like a nice little um bridge that the two characters have you know it's it's like this nice harmonious um understanding that they have between the two of them Mm. um yeah and it was interesting that she commits suicide but then nolan decided that he wanted to throw in there this idea that She was getting assassinated, or not assassinated, but you know, getting murdered. Mm. Remember, there was a shot—a quick shot of like um, someone's hands with gloves holding her down in the bathroom in the bath. The first time I saw her, I was like, "Yeah." The first time I saw her, I was like, "Wait, did she get killed?" Because I'm pretty sure that was hands holding her down, and in the next shot, it was just her drowning without the hands. So Mm. I think it was supposed to be. Yeah, it's like Nolan likes to do these creative things where he interjects a piece of creativity to get you to think about something a bit more than what the the shot is supposed to be, right? And I think with this one, I think she does she does commit suicide. I think that's what we all take away from it. But um, there is a suspicion that feeds into the conspiracy, which is not really a conspiracy, I guess, by the end of it. But it feeds into this conspiracy that um, they're all trying to like the feds, the government are trying to take down Oppenheimer without directly taking him down and accusing him of certain things. They are accusing him of like... Um, they're, they're not legally accusing him. You know, that's why like all these hearings, they're not courtroom hearings or anything like that. They're all just... What do they call it? Um, uh, a denial or something like that. Like it's not a...
1: It's, oh, the, uh, the uh... It's not a
0: conviction. It's a
1: denial of security clearance
0: yeah it's 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 a denial or something like that um but all of that stuff is is built so that they can try and put him in a position where he's essentially like the bad guy um so what i'm saying is like i think a lot of that feeds into this maybe clout of conspiracy around maybe they were trying to get to oppenheimer by Mm -hmm. killing his love interest or his you know? Right. Um. That's why he threw that scene in there. It was a quick shot. It was like there was two hands just holding her down. But then it cuts back to, the, I guess, the real scene, which is she's not being murdered. She's just committing suicide. Mm. Yeah. I was like, what? And then I saw it again in the second viewing. So, um, yeah, I think it makes it a bit more sense. I think it was really trying to um, give you that insight. Okay. So... Mm. Let's get into Act 2. Lizzie Groves approaches Oppenheimer and requests his enrollment in the Department of the Atomic Bomb, known as the Manhattan Project, but only after Oppenheimer assures them having no sympathies for communism. Consequently, Oppenheimer assembles a team of scientists to work together and create the atomic bomb in Los Alamos in New Mexico, aiming to use it as a means to save the world, despite the concerns about the potential global repercussions, in particular, the danger of the Nazis and their anti-Semitism drives the Jewish Oppenheimer. I, I thought it was interesting how um, with, all, with all the research all the hard work that all these scientists put in, a lot of it came to a point where they just relied on hope. <laughs> mm. Let me give you an example when he has this exchange with Leslie, uh, Groves, um, he says to him, um, well, Leslie says to him, like we, we need to get on top of this project ASAP because these guys are like, uh, 12 months ahead. And then he says, 18 months is like, how do you even know that? How, are we, how are we even supposed to like catch up 18 months ahead? And then he says, "Anti-Semitism," And then he's like, what? <laughs> he's like, um, uh, Hitler doesn't like the fact that, um, uh, a lot of the scientists are Jewish or something like that, or like, you know, all their resources are are coming from Jewish Jewish institutions or something, something along those lines. Mm. And he said, I just hope that he discourages all his scientists from getting their research from Jewish institutions.
1: Mm.
0: And that's literally relying on luck and hope. Hope. Right. Mm. (laughs) That's all like after all that amazing, you know, um, heavy lifting you get to a point where it's it's like based on hope and luck and then even with the bomb it's like you know they they've done all the hard work to um accumulate all the resources the data and the equations and all that kind of stuff to to put the atomic bomb together but there is a slight chance that the whole thing could fail and they just relied on the theory to be correct that was through sheer hope, I suppose, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, which is, it's just a very human thing. And I I thought that was quite, quite cool. Where were we in particular danger? Yep. So as Germany surrenders in World War II, some of the project scientists begin questioning its importance. It, however, continues the Trinity tests as, it, uh, sorry, continues. And the Trinity test is carried out with an inherent uncertainty regarding the possibility of triggering a chain reaction that could lead to catastrophic consequences and potentially end the world. The test is successfully completed right before the Possadam conference. Okay, so um, this is actually something I picked up on the second viewing. I was like, oh, okay, this makes a lot more sense with uh, the the dilemma that oppenheimer faces and the dilemma that he actually starts to realize after maybe after the trinity test but perhaps a little bit before that which is a lot of this dilemma came in the in the sheer fact that while they were working on the project um it came apparent became apparent to them that they need to shut it down because the nazis surrendered you know the nazis surrendered Mm -hmm. because um, Hitler committed suicide. There was no more direction in the Nazis, and so they surrendered and they were like, Well, we there was that um, there was that debate amongst the scientists though, like whether they should continue the project or whether they should like just leave it as it is or whatever, and there was very few scientists left that decided to keep going. Um so and, and I think that's that's a huge turning point for Oppenheimer himself, because he's like, Oh, um, this is <laughs> Like you see the struggle in his eyes. You see the struggle that um, even after doing the Trinity test, he's quite happy with it. And he's going along with the celebrations after the Trinity test. And But then once they hand off, like they hand off the project pretty quick, right? You got celebration. Sorry, you got the explosion of the Trinity test. You got the celebration, which is, I guess, in the morning because that Trinity test was like all night. And then it cuts immediately to them handing the bombs over to the government. <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's it's a very ominous scene because they're kind of like unsure I, I i think even the score indicates that um or gives you the impression that they're unsure on what's going to go on like it's a little bit kind of uh <laughs> um mm-hmm. fear like seeping in like what have we done we just created this bomb and then he even s- says to teller, um or actually sorry teller asks him like um do you think um, the Japanese would surrender if they know what's coming? And he says, I don't know. Mm. And I think his response of saying, I don't know, is, is purely coming from this complex internal battle of like, shit, I think we've done something wrong, but mm. I believe we have done something right because we, our whole intention was to create a weapon that was going to end all wars, not actually create more wars. <laughs> mm. So that's the start of the turning point. And and I think the movie picks up momentum a lot, especially after the Trinity test. Um, I think that's where the struggle starts to really become evident. Um, did you have any things on this part? What did you think? What did you think of the Trinity test? Like, what do you think of the explosion itself?
1: Um, that was very interesting to see that from that perspective. So, you know, it was very, I don't want to say it was beautiful but it was very interesting to watch. And then I was like, okay, well, the sound's going to hit soon and I was like, go through that whole quiet period.
0: Like, I didn't I even I it. didn't even know the sound was going to hit at all. Like when it was silent, I was like, oh, this is an interesting take. I'm not sure if I like the fact that it's silent. It's right. kind of cool that, you know, you hear people breathing. I, I love this kind of pulsating fearful uh impression you get from just going, ah, cause that's what you hear. And you hear like mm-hmm. the little kind of, um, uh, I don't know, like shrapnel of sound, you know, like maybe people with hands on their desk or something like that, or someone mm-hmm. like fiddling with a control, you hear like a little bit of that, which is interesting. I was like, okay, this is an interesting, like, this is a creative way of showing the bomb, but I was like, no way he's going to make it silent. Like he spent, they would have spent so much money on the explosion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, no way. And then as it comes out a little bit and you're not expecting it, it just rushes in the sound. I was like, whoa. Yeah. That is, that
1: I is mean, I did, I did see you jump, jump, not jump in your chair, but I saw you like react a few times. Yeah. I was like, don't you know this is coming? <laughs> this is your second viewing.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's still, it's, I mean, it's just because the sound design of this film is just phenomenal. It's loud. It's got so much impact. Um, mm. And yeah, that explosion was something to see. It's kind of crazy. I mean, how do you approve something like that? Mm, <laughs> it's, yeah. Like, I, I, I know film productions can do explosions, but not that size. That's, like, a huge explosion, dude.
1: <laughs> no, I know. But, I don't, look, I don't know if it was a fluff article, but I remember someone saying, like, oh, like, yeah, Nolan. Or was it, maybe it was a meme. Was like, Nolan saying, like, CGI is, you know, not very good for, for bombs. So everyone's like, How did you create? create Yeah,
0: like he he had this. Um, he had this meeting with his visual effects supervisor and his visual effects supervisor. I can't remember his name, uh, but I think he's worked on like Tenet and stuff with him. Um, he he eventually came up with how to do it after like five months of research. Um, Mm. How that how that's possible, man, is like beyond me. I can't even think of how you even put that together. Like, do you hire scientists to help you put that bomb together, or Mm. like? How do you, how do you even approve that process? <laughs> like That's crazy.
1: Apparently. Okay. Apparently, according to an insider article is that he used chemicals and layered clips while editing. So they made a realistic atomic explosion.
0: All oh, right. They're saying that there's a little bit of CGI in it. Uh,
1: no, to film the test, he used an old Hollywood trick and made a bomb in a miniature instead of using CGI. By using chemicals and layering clips while editing, they made a realistic atomic explosion. Oh,
0: okay. So they're talking about the compositing part of the film, probably. Mm. Yeah. 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 But it's crazy, though. Like, man, it's like... No CG had a bomb. Can you imagine the actors? Like, wait, hold on. We're supposed to be watching the bomb, and you're saying that you're not going to make a CG? (laughs) It's like, all right, everybody ready? Stand to the sides. (laughs) like, what the...
1: So they made a small one, but they filmed it super close, so...
0: Yeah, yeah, like, because I was watching, you know, as I said, I was been watching the interviews, like, Matt Damon um, and uh, Killian Murphy, who else was on that set? Like, yeah, some of those other actors, they were saying it was kind of strange that he invited us down there to observe the bomb that they got to explode. (laughs) Right. They were like, ah, I don't know about this, but, you know.
1: We're not used to this (laughs) yet.
0: I'm I'm sure it's going to be safe, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is wild to me that was wild um so i mean do you want me to jump into act three we can jump into act I Three. i guess
1: i guess the other thing that i guess we haven't really covered is the whole like um i don't even know what to call it um like it was very i'm trying to think of the word stand out is probably not the word i'm thinking of but you know how, how they kept switching from color to black and white yeah so you know, trying to portray that that whole period where there, it's obviously a different timeline, and they portray that through black and white of um, Louis Strauss mm-hmm. getting questioned mm-hmm. about his actions and whatnot. Yeah. So, anyway,
0: yeah. Um. We can talk about that later. The that whole uh, switch between black and white and color. Um, it, I think he's done the same concept as Memento. So in Memento, the black and white is the objective. And then the colored part is subjective. Right. And I think that's what we see in Oppenheimer. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's at least my takeaway. I'm pretty sure the black and white is, at least most of it is objective, like an objective Mm. observation of the story. And then the colored version is, yeah, when we get back into the eyes of Oppenheimer. Um, Mm. Fun fact as well, all this is filmed in IMAX, right? With the exception of like some of the closer small room dialogue sequences, I don't think they would have used IMAX in that because IMAX is way too loud. <laughs> have have right. you ever seen or like watched a video of them filming in an IMAX
1: camera?
0: No, nope. it's like <laughs> it's like this loud right. engine. <laughs> it's it's right. insane. So I I don't think it's practical for the actors to be using. Uh, you know filming with the IMAX camera when they're doing like the small room scenes and all that it's still shot on 70mm film the entire film but mm. the IMAX cameras i think are mostly for outdoor scenes i could be wrong i could be wrong but i kind of i can't imagine the actors agreeing to doing these small intimate scenes with freaking IMAX cameras that are just like loud <laughs> mm. blasting in your in your ears um yeah so the IMAX um what they've done with the black and white film they actually shot it in black and white they didn't they didn't um re-edit they didn't recolor it you know they didn't go through color grading to make it black and white it's actual black and white so when we were watching it yesterday in 70 mil i don't know if you noticed but the movie looked like like the black and white sequences look like they're from 1940s or 30s (laughs) Mm. they they look Uh, so authentically black and white it's it's insane
1: I mean, it, no. I mean, I didn't question the authenticity. It didn't look like it was color graded. It looked like it was meant to be of that period, mm. and I think that was executed well.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that was just them. So they had to create a whole new film reel just for black and white, right? <laughs> like that's that's crazy to me. It, which makes sense. Like if you want to do black and white on film, I kind of I can't imagine what you'd have to do to redigitize it to make it black and white if you didn't shoot it on black and white. 70 mil film so, yeah so that was crazy so um getting that approved into projections um that's probably another whole process i'd imagine um and they had to uh, the film reel that they had to get approved which is all created and produced by kodak um that was a whole another process as well <laughs> and the film reel itself is like 11 miles long it's like wow. yeah, a couple hundred pounds or some shit like that. <laughs> you, imagine, you imagine projectionists like you know receiving that stuff. They're like, really? I have to put this together. It's probably going to take me a week <laughs> to put it yeah. together.
1: but I think that's why they, they showed that that little pre pre shot uh segment before yeah. the movies, like you know, putting together the real um,
0: stuff, man. I've actually had a hand in uh, doing projection work back when there was no digital projectors, um, So um, I wasn't, like, the main projectionist. I was, like, assistant to a projectionist at Reading Cinemas back in Wellington. Mm-hmm. And so I've put together, like, the stamp stuff and all that kind of stuff, framing up um, the frames, um, putting it through the lens thing that kind of flickers like this, like, mm-hmm. Man, it's, like, it's so intricate, like, where you put it through. It's like a maze that you put the film through. But it's fascinating, right? right? Like, that's how... It was just—it's so beautiful, like looking at film um, in the projection room and watching it being projected onto a screen. So it's a nice piece of nostalgia to like watch another film, even a great film like this in seventy mil. Um, mm. So maybe it kind of makes me want to get a part-time job in a project as a projectionist <laughs> at the mm. one one of like three cinemas that we have in Sydney. <laughs> hey,
1: someone's going to maybe. It.
0: Yeah, I know, right? Someone's going to do it. Um, Okay, so let's get into Act 3, and then we'll sort of conclude a little bit there. Um, U.S. President Harry S. Truman makes the decision to drop atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. Devastated by the immense destruction caused by these bombings, Oppenheimer meets with Truman in his office, who is disgusted by Oppenheimer's emotional state and perceives it as a sign of weakness, or as weaknesses... In their meeting, he absolves Oppenheimer of all responsibility for the bombings, but Oppenheimer holds himself accountable. At one point, Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein, oh, we haven't spoken about Albert Einstein yet, uh, world-renowned physicists discuss the far-reaching implications of nuclear weapons and the heavy burden of knowledge they bear. In the following years, he becomes a vocal advocate against further nuclear development, especially the creation of the hydrogen bomb. Okay, so... Something that was a little bit confused about was, like, hydrogen bomb. What is the difference between a hydrogen bomb and a... What's the bomb they use? Um, uh,
1: it was the... Um,
0: uh,
1: not the hydrogen bomb. It was... Uh, was it just... Like,
0: the, the materials that they use for the bomb. Uh, I can't remember. Um, I was just getting confused was, about yeah. the, like, different types of bomb. There's a hydrogen bomb. There's a... Um, the hydrogen bomb is what he is what, uh, what's his name? Um, Lynn, Let me go to the cast here. <laughs> um. Oh, I didn't even put him in the cast. Not black it. I didn't put him in the cast. How dare I? Um, okay, so. Why you look up the bombs.
1: <laughs> Thanks.
0: What's that? Uh, uranium, uranium. Uranium. That's yeah. the, that's the material. Uh, the, yeah. The chemical material I was thinking about uranium. So yeah, the, the, the atomic bomb was uranium bomb, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, I was, yes, yeah, so I was a little bit confused on um, like, did they end up using the hydrogen bomb anyway I don't
1: think like, they, not,
0: not in not the bombing of um japan but has anybody like used the hydrogen bomb because i feel like that piece of technology or at least that research would be easily um no easily produced right okay no, 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 no one.
1: they have not. okay um but experts say it has the power to wipe out entire cities and kill significantly more people than the already powerful atomic bomb which the u.s dropped in japan right
0: okay so um i can't remember the name of the the other actor that came up with well that presented the idea of doing the hydrogen uh, bomb for some reason he's not uh, in my cast list, so i don't know why i think he's uh, Tatler? teller yeah teller yeah. teller teller oh
1: teller sorry let me come Tatlock and teller mm. um
0: yeah that that kind of stuff is is a little bit out of my warehouse like not a little bit, like very much out of my warehouse. So like when they start talking about science stuff, it's like, I understand the building blocks of what they're talking about and how it comes together. And I love that that expression through storytelling, which is good, but like hydrogen bomb, like d- nuclear weapons, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it's like, um, but I, I was just wondering, like I, I knew it wasn't the hydrogen bomb that um, they used to bomb Japan, but I was just wondering if like, if there's any country like the US or, or even the Soviets had tried to even um create the hydrogen bomb it'd be interesting to to do a bit of research around like has anybody got that piece of research from the manhattan project or has it has anybody like even tried to um theorize like a hydrogen bomb uh they've theorized it sorry but has anybody tried to like put it together i wonder if
1: that's well i'm pretty sure there's a lot of imagine if they if they know how powerful it is i'm sure people are in this state of I don't know what the word is.
0: Maybe the Soviets, like during the Cold War, you know, tried to put it together. But then there's a question of like, did they have information? Did they have any intel on what the man of what was happening in the Manhattan Manhattan Project, and if anybody was doing any research around the hydrogen bomb? I don't know. Mm.
1: There was, there was. I'm gonna just pivot for a little second, but like this, this particular moment in the movie remind me of The Dark Knight when they had the two keys on the separate boats, <laughs> oh, right? With the criminals and the, yeah like, they both have the power to destroy each other, mm. but they're not.
0: Yeah, because the takeaway from that is that, like, deep down inside, there are people that are good, you know, and, and they discover that good when they're in moments of, like, I guess you would call it moral dilemma. <laughs> mm. um, they eventually side on the good good side, I suppose, or the evil side. <clears throat> okay, so, um, especially the creation of the hydrogen bomb. However, his stats becomes a point of contention in... Tense time of the cl- uh, tense climate of the Cold War with the Soviet Union, Oppenheimer's perceived left-wing ties and association with TATLOCK draw suspicion uh, from government officials. Lewis Strauss, a powerful figure with staunch anti-communist views and a grudge against Oppenheimer, seized the opportunity to exploit these allegations via a hearing intended to remove Oppenheimer from political influence. Um, Oppenheimer's security clearance is revoked. And the revelation of his affair with Tatlock and the suspicion of his ties to communists led to his fall from grace, effectively silencing his influence. And in hearing of his, uh, uh, in a hearing of his own, however, Strauss's actions backfires. A former metal metal, metal- yeah, metal- yeah. Metalurgical? wow, metalurgical laboratory technician testifies against Strauss, which is played by Remy Malek. Uh pointing out his personal grievances with with and agenda against Oppenheimer. He is denied a cabinet position by the Senate. Okay, so there's so much to unfold in this final act, and the final act it moves super quick. There's so much dialogue, so much back and forth. There's a little bit of a jump <clears throat> between time periods, but not as much as like the first two acts. <clears throat> I want to use this time to talk a bit about Robert Downey Jr. and his performance as Louis Strauss. <clears throat> Now, his performance as Louis Strauss. I never never thought that Robert Downey Jr., a.k.a. Tony Stark, would be able to convince us that he could be a good antagonist. Um, Mm. He's effectively the antagonist for the film. Um, There can be an argument made that the antagonist is probably the internal battle that Oppenheimer has. Um, And he's also kind of like sharing both those roles. Uh, Oppenheimer, I would say, like he shares the protagonist and the antagonist role because, you know, mm. on one hand he's trying to do something good, but on the other hand he's actually created something c- incredibly evil. Um, mm. And then when you introduce somebody like Louis Strauss, I love that he is almost the – he's kind of like the poster boy for politics in the U.S. It may be indicative of many politics all, all over the world, but the U.S. is always – the U.S. is always under this magnifying glass because they're the biggest, most loudest country, especially when it comes to politics. And I think Louis Strauss was like a great representation of that. It didn't overly glorify. I mean, this movie in and of itself doesn't glorify anything that they present. It's really just like an observational study on Mm. what happens with politics, war, warmongers, the race of, like the arms race, um, selfishness, greed. You know, it just... Presents the case of that, which is, I think, is cool. And I think Louis Strauss's character, um, he's so convincing that, like Robert Downey Jr., he wears the makeup. It's it's a weird thing to say, but when you have makeup in a character, some people just look like they're in costume, right? Like I'd say bad movies or, yeah, bad movies with maybe bad actors, bad performances. They just look like people in costume. Robert Downey Jr. looks like an old, weathered, selfish, um greed-hating <laughs> person. But like his everything from his like actions, his physical posture, um it, it, and this is another like weird observation, but I just thought it was quite cool because that's a really good piece of characterization for his character.
1: There you go. Oh.
0: Camera, down. No idea. We just Camera down. Camera down. Camera down. Now we
1: good. We good. Sorry, <laughs> that was not meant to happen.
0: But... <laughs> Camera down. Um, yeah. Even like weird little characterizations, such as like him running through the door. Like when he goes to meet Oppenheimer for the first time, he opens the door and then he does a little like run, scuttle down to the footpath. Like just that little run, I'm mm. like, wow, that's this guy's method acting his brains out right now. <laughs> um. So yeah, I think it was he, he. was he was great. He had so much presence in the film. When I think about, mm. he asked me two characters that stood out in the film. It's Oppenheimer, Robert Strauss, well, Robert Strauss, Louis Strauss, Robert Strauss, <laughs> <laughs> Tony Strauss. Um, yeah, it's, Iron Strauss. Yeah, yeah. Iron <laughs> It was it was unbelievable his performance. He is no mm. doubt going to get the supporting actor role. Mm. Like it's crazy. Um. Anyway, so yeah, he's 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 really great, and I love that the pretty much like the third act and post-Trinity um, scene. It's all about Strauss and Oppenheimer. All mm-hmm. the other characters, obviously, supporting that. Um, yeah, what do you think?
1: I mean, it was hard to differentiate, like because you know whenever you hear – I'll just say Tony. Whenever you hear R D J speak, it just reminds you of Tony. Just the way he interrupts people mm-hmm. and the way he speaks. It's you know, he, it's hard to draw the differences between the characters. But like, you know, like I think he that he played the perfect role in that movie. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. the the right amount of I don't know if, if Sass is the right word, but like the way he approached people, the way he spoke to people mm-hmm. was you know, the right role for him. Oh
0: yeah. 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 Like he has this um superior complex. Of- and I think he, mm. he wears that superior complex so well because I guess for a person of that power, you have to be in a position where you can give some generosity but take more than you're giving in generosity, <laughs> mm. right? Like that's how you get to those powers. And then his true colors really come to show when he's convicted of the truth. Um, And he kind of yeah. just like, he lets his hair down at that point. He's like, oh, whatever, you yeah, know, I'm going to... I'm gonna get vilified for this, and I'm gonna lose my position. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, let's talk about uh, Albert Einstein. Okay. Um,
1: before, before, before you just go into that, because it's gonna lead into the Einstein part. Okay. So in that final scene where Alden Han Solo 2.0 <laughs> was talking to
0: <laughs> Han Solo.
1: was talking to Louis Strauss. About, you know, maybe they were talking about something different mm. because he felt like Einstein was in on yep. it. Then it went to the final scene with Einstein. And I know you're going to talk about more about this, but I want you just to recap or recover what they did actually talk about. Because during that scene in the cinema, there was someone flashing, or the studio studio cinema was flashing lights on us.
0: Yeah, apparently. So it was, I actually saw what was happening, by the way, in that um, with the lights flashing through the cinema. It was somebody with a torch in the roof. Uh, yeah, and I think it was one of... Because there was builders at the cinema at the time. I, th- I think right. they're still finishing on piece, finishing off pieces of the build because, you know, the Ritz have gone through, like, refurbishments. I don't know if you noticed that. No. Yeah, well, the whole thing's... It's like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's all brand new now. Um, okay. So I think they still had builders around doing shit. And I was like, really? The, there's a session on right now. You have to do this right now? <laughs> yeah, I can right. imagine the builders are like, dude, it's Friday. It's, like, almost 3 o'clock. I want to get off. <laughs> I want to yeah, clock out, right. you know. I have a feeling like that's probably what would have happened. Um, yeah, so you want me to talk about that scene? Um, yeah, that just to
1: recap, because I feel like I missed the – it was the final scene of the movie, yeah. but I kind of missed the first part of the conversation between which, Oppenheimer and Einstein. Which
0: is a trademark that, you're thinking, that you that you're talking about before. That's a Christopher Nolan trademark. He tends to bring – he tends to open the movie with the ending. You're right. right? That's what we – that's the first one of the first scenes that we have with Oppenheimer and um and Louis Strauss, and actually one of the first scenes at the beginning. Um, and then that comes into fruition at the end. Like, as that scene started to play out towards the end, I was like, ah, it clicked to me. I was like, duh, this is what Christopher Nolan likes to do. He likes to present the ending at the beginning, but you don't know mm. what the real ending is, ending is until yeah. that unfolds at the end. So, um, and that makes a lot more sense to me. Like, when he had that conversation with Einstein, um, especially like we, you know, we see that at the beginning. I just thought like Einstein, my my takeaway from that was that Einstein just doesn't like Oppenheimer because of what he's created. That that was my takeaway, but it wasn't that. He's always liked Oppenheimer. He, he's always had a good relationship with him, but it was just that daunting. It was that daunting idea that we have unleashed the end of the world, basically, <laughs> and, yeah, right. and my so my takeaway is that uh, like because I told you when I first watched it, I was just in a state of shock and I got pretty emotional. Like I wasn't like full on freaking game crying or anything. I, I, I don't think I actually cried, cried, but I just like I got I quivered when we when that scene unfolds and we see all the imagery of like him and the rocket and he's seeing all the rockets kind of fly up, which you know the nuclear rockets. Um, you see that wide shot of rockets all over the world just being mm. initiated and you see that beautiful shot of the world it's it's beautiful but it's disgusting <laughs> mm. it's a beautiful evil shot of the globe getting engulfed like the atmosphere getting engulfed in flames mm. like I was just kind of like shocked it, it, it was like a like at that very moment I guess I just questioned all my beliefs <laughs> I was like mm. it's like maybe I need to search for God a bit more or something <laughs> it, was, mm. it, was, it was just such a um overwhelming uh, over overwhelming revelation I think revelation is kind of a good way to put it mm. um and so and so then the second time I saw it I was like wow this what he means there you know he, he's making a statement which is like an indictment of humans in human history, he's making a statement that mm. the atomic bomb isn't what I'm talking about. We've just created a piece of technology on how we can destroy the world. And people are going to take that idea and figure it out in a different way. And so when I'm thinking about the 21st century, I'm thinking about AI. Like I said before, yeah. AI is unhinged, literally unhinged. <laughs> mm. um, there's zero regulations on AI. But I'm not going to criticize the government on on them not uh regulating ai because how do you even regulate ai like how do you even begin to do that like it's that stuff is crazy like the fact that ai has the potential to just if if it's if it becomes uncontrolled and it becomes like the umbrella corporation you know and it becomes like it, it becomes like um what's the corporation of terminator i can't remember is there a corporation uh, Sky yeah you know, if, if it becomes skynet like like it, it's funny to laugh at it right now right? Like, you know it's, it's a bit of a mm. comedic but like we're not that far from that man <laughs> like no you're not that wrong could, that could happen like it could actually happen skynet
1: i remember someone saying that there's more safety rulings around making a sandwich than there are with ai at the moment
0: yeah i'd believe that
1: but you know like it just you just need a body of people to to control that or start regulating it.
0: Yeah, it's just I I wouldn't even know how you would regulate AI. Like, what are you supposed to like? What would be one regulation on AI? Uh, you cannot create. Okay, that's the end of AI. <laughs> you cannot create anything. Just and how do you even destroy AI? Like once you've put it out there, like how do you? Get, like the impression I get about AI is like once you've created it, it's like a living organism. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't destroy. You can't destroy living organisms unless you use the atomic bomb to or the hydrogen bomb <laughs> to destroy everything.
1: You read, uh, Asimov, you know. Asimov. You know, yeah.
0: Asimov. It's, uh, yeah. Anyway, so it's such a wild uh, revelation that I get from it, and 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 the second time I watched it, I was like, okay, it's still shocking, but I'm not as like I'm not emotional compared to the first time I saw it. I was just, and I I didn't know what to say at the end of the first time I saw it. I was just kind of silent. I was like that. That was a beautiful film, but um, um it was quite devastating at the same time.
1: Mm.
0: It's a beautifully ugly film.
1: <laughs> mm. Hence, hence why I said brilliant but heavy. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, I just don't know what to make of it. I mean, I, I hope it actually does. It does teach a lot of people, regardless of the generation. I think it. I guess especially for like the millennials. Um, no, sorry, not millennials, women, but the Gen Z um, generation. Mm-hmm. I hope it gives them a really brilliant insight as to what kind of powers we can create <laughs> um, that can really destroy us.
1: I don't know if that this movie would be well-received by like 20-year-olds and whatnot, because I can imagine watching that as a 20-year-old and being like, oh, this isn't for me, it's too much talking. Sure. But... Not sure. I'm
0: hoping. I'm, I mean, I'm relying on the fact that it's it's by Nolan's reputation that people will, will seriously consider um, this as a, mm. a, a, pe- a like a, a life lesson, but also some piece of uh, uh, I don't even want to say entertaining entertainment because the movie I wouldn't describe the movie as entertaining. You know,
1: thought provoking, informative. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's meant to be a biopic, right? So it's meant to be t- retelling of someone's life yeah. and what what they were known for. Yeah,
0: and to me, it's like a it's a very stylized, uh, beautifully shot um, documentary. That's what it feels like. Mm. Hmm. Um. Do you want to talk about any of the other characters that maybe stood out to you, or any other pieces of um, this? third act that stood out to you
1: um i mean like we were saying in the cinema yesterday like it was pretty much spot the actor game while you're watching yeah but um i'm just trying to think like uh was there someone in there that stood out that wasn't really in the forefront but you know like josh hartnett was there like he was playing a kind of major role oh, he was in there yeah. a fair amount.
0: Yeah. Maybe let's Um, mention some of the actors that we haven't quite looked at. I mean, Scott Grimes, like he had a fairly small role. He he was always like, he's the right hand man of, uh, Louis Strauss, uh, Robert Down Jr. I should say. Um, Oh, yep. Yep. Uh, Matt Damon, we probably haven't spoken much about Matt Damon. I think Matt, Matt Damon was excellent. I think, I feel like this guy can't do any wrong though. You give Matt Damon anything and he kills it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think he's just great in everything. Um, uh, who else we got here? Jason Clark. Yeah, he was great. I think Jason Clark's oh, always you know really in, good.
1: He was in, he was in Terminator.
0: Yeah, <laughs> which Terminator was it? It was like Terminator Five, uh, was it or Gen- Genesis? Uh, Gen- Genesis? Genesis. Genesis. Oh. Wait, was it Genesis? Um,
1: yeah, yeah, because yeah, he played uh, John Connor, right?
0: I think. Oh, I can't remember. I mean, those movies were so bad that I forgot. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I so soldered crazy. it out of my brain. <laughs> Um, um who else we got here uh james yassi yeah he was kind of cool kenneth Branagh, yeah that's right kenneth browner was was great um i think kenneth Branagh's uh accent was more believable as a he's a dutch scientist right i think he's a dutch scientist he yes. was more believable as a as, with a Dutch accent than he was as a Russian accent And Tenet. I thought his Russian accent was so mm. unbelievable. It was terrible. <laughs> Maybe, like, like, not completely terrible that it took me out of the movie, but I was just like, ah, man, I don't believe you're Russian, dude. <laughs> mm. Here, I feel like he, he he's more believable, like, um, as, uh, yeah, different nationalities. There's,
1: there's definitely a lot of, um, like, actors, but they didn't really get that much say or input because mm. they were just doing one liners. Yep. Like Jack Quaid and
0: Jack Quaid, yeah. The Bongo yeah. drama <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah, the <laughs> Bongo Drama. That's the one thing you remember. <laughs> um and Benny Benny Safti. Benny Safety, uh, that's right. Yeah, played Ed Teller.
0: Yeah. Um What was his most recent film, yeah. uh, Benny Safti? Um uh
1: Daddy Long Legs. No, Uncut Gems.
0: Yeah, Uncut Gems, that's right. Yeah, yeah, he's great. He's very good.
1: But unfortunately, everyone else I'm not super familiar with. Yeah, as I go, as I scroll down further and further.
0: I mean, Ra- Rami Malik was was quite good. Like he's, mm-hmm. he had like what, ten lines, fifteen lines, maybe.
1: <laughs> well, there's even um oh, that guy who was in Hereditary and Old. I can't remember his name though.
0: Hereditary and old. Uh, He's
1: like the main character in Hereditary, the main son. And uh, I'm just gonna look it up.
0: Yeah, look it up. Can't remember. Why
1: is he not in
0: that? Um. Yeah. uh, This is. Alex Wolf. Alex Wolf. Alex Wolf. Okay, he's not on my cast list, of course, because there's like a hundred people in this movie. (laughs) Um, yeah, just, just everybody just gave their best performance, even if they just had to stand there. Like everybody really contributed to bringing realism to this devastating event, historic event. Um, uh, man, it was, it was, it was just awesome to see so many great performances from everybody. Um, Yeah, you know, especially Robert Downey Jr. He doesn't have to work anymore, but he just he put he acted his life out for this film. He could have just thrown in the towel, but he's like, well, Christopher Nolan's hitting me up. I'm going to be <laughs> going to be giving the performance of a lifetime. I want people to remember me for this. <laughs> and it's true. I yeah. think I'm I'm really going to remember him for. Obviously, like Tony Stark, you're probably he's probably going to have number one memory, but <clears throat> I'm going to remember this performance from from him. And as Lewis Strauss mm-hmm. is pretty amazing. Um, so uh, what else to say? Oh actually, you know what I should mention about this is the technical the other technical parts of the film. The musical score from um, Lauren Gorenson. Uh, Ludwig. Ludwig, Ludwig Lauren. Uh, Ludwig Gorenson. Amazing. I thought he did a great job mm. with Tenet. I thought, okay, this is the this is the upgrade that um, Christopher Nolan needs need in his films yeah. with Tenet. I was like, man, this is amazing! It's like, it's like if uh, Hans Zimmer had a child. It's Libra <laughs> He
1: did it in five days. Apparently, apparently, what
0: the score in five days?
1: Yeah, no way. Recorded. Sorry, oh, sorry. Recorded. Recorded. Okay, the explosive score in five yeah,
0: days. I was like, no way. Scores like movie scores don't take five days. They take. Oh, weeks. Hang on,
1: hang on, hang on. There's about two and a half hours of music in the film, which he recorded over the course of five days. Right,
0: he probably just had that creative flow, man, and he just didn't want to put it down. Um, yeah, his score in this is just—it's—it's it's a little bit better than uh, what we get in Tenet. Tenet's amazing, but I feel like this score is just taking it up a notch, which is good. That's what you want.
1: He does—he does Mandalorian as well, right? Um, um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, sure maybe he does Lauren. Yeah,
0: maybe. Not too sure.
1: Yeah, it's seems Okay. That he does the whole yeah. seasons?
0: Like, season uh, except one, except for,
1: two? except, except for three, because he was doing Black Panther.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right. Three. He did Black Panther. Um, yeah, Ludwig Gordon, amazing score, score writer, scorer, musical composer, I should probably say. <laughs> great musical, great <clears throat> musical composition in this. Um, Hoyt, we we cannot do this ref, do this review without mentioning Hoit van Hoytema, the DOP, the genius behind the camera. This is the second time that he's got to work with Christopher, Christopher Nolan. He did Tenet with him. He's brought him back to do. Oh, actually, he did uh, Interstellar with him as well. And Dunkirk. Mm. What am I? What am I saying? <laughs> it's all coming back to mind. Did all so, the greats. So from Interstellar onwards, it's Hoit van Hoytema. Before Interstellar, it was. Uh, Wally Fister. So Wally Fister ha, had been working with Christopher Nolan since I think Memento. Yeah, yeah so he did all the the greats with um, Wally Fister. But I think the reason why he didn't get Wally Fister back for Interstellar is because I think that was the time that Wally Fister directed his first film, which was mm-hmm. that awful Transcendence movie. I don't know if you. Remember that movie Trans? Where Johnny, Johnny Depp? Depp yeah. yeah, that was uh, Wally Fister's directorial debut. Mm. Terrible. It's like, man, just stick to cinematography. <laughs> that's that's pretty sad. No, I, I I think it was okay. It wasn't like, um, I don't know. It wasn't like the Room Terrible or anything like that. It was just not a very good film. Um, right. But I think Wally Fister's amazing DOP. I just don't think he's doing DOP work anymore. I think he's just trying his hand at um directing. Yeah, so Hote Van Hortimer, man, amazing cinematographer. He's very much uh like similar cinematography style to Roger Deacons and I'd probably even say Wally Pfister as well. But I think a lot of this stuff really comes down to how mm-hmm. Nolan wants to frame his films. You know, Roger Deacons in these days he works with uh Denis Villeneuve. Um and, but again I think this is also like a creative vision from like Denis Villeneuve and then for this, Christopher Nolan, that's is the way he likes to shoot and frame his films. So mm. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Pictography. Um, I think there's like nothing really else to mention about this film. Really?
1: No, it was delivered. Well, delivered well, um, definitely, definitely a more enjoyable cinematic experience. Yep. Um, I, I spoke to my, my family about it and they're like, Oh, you know, is it something we should wait for it to come out in no. streaming or, and I was like, no, nah, you should watch it in the cinema for the experience.
0: Like you shouldn't never watch dialogue a Chris, for the first time you should never watch a Christopher Nolan movie, um, at home or on a, on a laptop or a mobile phone. Like that's, yeah. that's the rule in Christopher Nolan films. You watch them on the big screen. Mm. And people know, why. but I guess for a lot
1: of people, yeah, for a lot of people who didn't get the chance to watch the older movies, this is now their chance it's to their do chance, it. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah it's, just, it's it's definitely not as action heavy, but you know, like it still provides an experience, and I think that's what you're going for to cinema. For.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a technical masterpiece. I think it's a great story about um, uh, a really devastating historic event. It's probably the best way that you could tell that historic event. I, I think without um without like indulging too much in in, you know, uh warfare and shit like that. Um yeah, yeah I thought I thought it was great. It's not it's not an entertaining movie. It's more just uh, I don't know. It's a good observation. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good yeah, creative observation of that historic period.
1: Reflecting on that, yeah, like I didn't feel like I was entertained, but I was it was definitely an experience. Yeah. So I feel
0: like I was just stressed the whole time.
1: <laughs> yeah, don't go there if you're already stressed. That's what yeah. I'd probably recommend. Yeah, wait until you're like uh, injo- ready to enjoy something. But yeah, may walk out a little bit. I stressed. think this
0: is a good way to sort of like end off this review and recap. Is that like give people some some pointers or some advice on when to see this film? See it at mm-hmm. night first. See it on the biggest screen possible, preferably seventy mil projectors. If you don't have that in your city, then I don't know, travel. I actually told a friend of mine, Demi, who I play uh CSGO with, like he said, Oh hey River, I'm gonna go watch um Oppenheimer like in a couple a uh, couple of days or something like that or Monday or something. it's like, Cool and he's like, No, but like I i can't see it in seventy mil because we don't have it in Gold Coast. I was like, Let me look it up where you can get seventy mil. So in Brisbane you can see it at the mm. Palace Cinema, the Astor cinema or the Asta picture or something like that in the palace cinema on 70 mil. And he's like, I'm not traveling to Brisbane. It's like, I was like, dude, if there's one thing that you want to travel to see when it comes to Mm. films, it's a Christopher Nolan film. It would be worth it. Trust me. Just go see it on 70 Mm. mil. It's beautiful to see that. um, Just that depth of field that you don't get in digital. Digital is very kind of flat. um, And 70 mil is just um, ironically feels a little bit more 3d compared to like digital. Um, mm. and the image quality is just amazing with that resolution and he, and he actually contemplated it and i think he's actually going to go see it in brisbane <laughs> 70 mil oh there you yeah. go so listeners i mean you probably already have the film because <laughs> we just spoiled the entire thing well i don't know if like there's any spoil i don't think there's anything to hide from this movie i think everything that you see is everything that you would – oh, sorry, everything – yeah, everything that you would expect or theorize to be in this film. There's actually no spoiler territory stuff, I don't think. Apart from maybe the um, the revelation of the dialogue between Oppenheimer and Einstein, maybe that's a bit of a spoiler mm. because that's kind of like kicking the can a, a little bit. You know, it's mm. sort of like – the, the uh the domino effect or something you know that's you feel that domino effect by the end of it as the credits start to roll you're like wow we're in that domino um effect right now i suppose But otherwise, like there's no spoiler ish or spoiler territory stuff to like spoil <laughs> mm. it's all really just documentary type stuff um yeah where would you rank this Actually, amongst other what, Nolan films, or just otherwise, let's, um, let's tell me your out of ten ranking, and then where you would rank it in the Nolan universe.
1: The second question is going to be hard. I am um, <laughs> going to give it a nine. Uh, no, you know what? Good nine point five.
0: Mm, okay,
1: it's good. It's great. It's up there. Um, I'm gonna detract that half point because of that the sound issue. Like me, not like I was. That's why I asked you. Like, is it my hearing or is it actually the audio that I'm having trouble hearing? So that's where I'm gonna detract a point. But otherwise, I feel like everything was pretty much up there. Hmm. Um, where does it rank? Oh no. <laughs> oh, that's tough. That's really so. Tough. It sounds like your
0: number one Nolan movie is TDK.
1: Yeah, that that's going to be definitely TDK. But then what follows after that? I've never considered like the second one. Maybe I'd have to rewatch the whole Nolan catalog again. Mm. Um, yeah, I'd probably put it, it would be in my top five, possibly three. Okay. Possibly three, okay. but probably in the top five. Right. Um, I know that's a it's a wide band, but it's, yeah, top five. Okay. There you go. Okay. Keep it nice and loose. What about you? All
0: right, so I'm going to give this movie a nine out of ten, so the same as you. Um, that makes mm-hmm. it easier to um, do the calculation. <laughs> Two 9 out of 10s is 9 out of 10. <laughs> Oops, uh, that's not great. Uh, yeah, 9 out of 10. Um, where do I rank this in the Nolan universe? I think it's probably going to be on the lower side of the Nolan universe. Um, <clears throat> at number one, I'd probably put TDK. That's uh, it's so hard. Like, I don't really want to put TDK at number one, but then I think it just objectively... It's- it, kind of deserves to be number one just because I yeah. think that film is everything that a <clears> film should be. Which is, <clears> it's a weird statement. I, I'll probably have to defend my heart out of this. But um, just to just to sort of hit home a little bit of that, what I would call objectively, the one of the greatest films ever made, is that I don't, like, subjectively, it's not my favorite film of all time. Right? <clears throat> so, the TDK is objectively quote-unquote objectively the one of the greatest if not the greatest film ever made but it's not my favorite film ever made um Mm. so so that kind of gives you like an idea about me not being biased because you know it's Mm. easy for you to just say that your favorite film is the best film ever that's probably a more easier thing yeah um but then like yeah it's it's weird because i probably wouldn't say that as my favorite nolan film
1: right yeah right so it's
0: it's it's a it's a tough one. So anyway, I'm just gonna say TDK is like number one. Number two is Prestige, and number three is Inception. Mm-hmm. Number four is Memento. Number five is uh, Interstellar. Number six would be probably Oppenheimer. Number six. Okay. Yeah. Um, then number seven would be Dunkirk, and mm-hmm. then number eight will be following. Yeah, I'll probably do it like that. Oh, actually, I forgot about um, Batman Begins. And okay, wait. Uh, TDK. Let or... me let me start again. <laughs> oh, uh, come on. man! I have to actually write this down, probably. But okay, so TDK, Prestige, Inception, Batman Begins. Um, <sighs> what else did I say? Did I say Prestige already?
1: Memento, Memento.
0: okay. I have to like write this down correctly. But what what I'm saying is that Oppenheimer is probably on the lower side of the Nolan films. Yeah, that's it's still got a nine, but it's because like it's more that favorite, enjoyable, entertaining, watchability aspect that doesn't quite get Mm. it. So it's a weird ranking system. I know, like I sort of see that as a weird ranking system. Say that, like even nine out of ten doesn't get up there with the Nolan films because at the end of the day, like. What I love about Nolan's film is that he is amazing at doing action. His action mm. set pieces are huge, man. They are massive. They're mm. entertaining. They're glorious. I just love them. And I still love that kind of stuff about him. Um, and with that missing in Oppenheimer, it doesn't take points off of Oppenheimer because I think the film itself is just technically just perfect. Um, mm. But it's, it's really that, initial reason why I got into films was because I was entertained (laughs) by film, Mm -hmm. right? Like film was always the thing where I could escape and just enjoy like all everything that you wouldn't normally enjoy in real life. Oppenheimer Mm -hmm. is like a real life study, you know? Um, But just with all the technical gadgets to, to put it together. Mm. Yeah. I think those are like my final thoughts, I guess on, on Oppenheimer. There's, there's a lot of people writing like outstanding reviews like I- I'm saying sort of a like calling it an outstanding film and I think everybody is generally citing on that it's Kristen Nolan's best work. I don't think it's his best work I think his best work would I mean I think inception's a better movie than than Oppenheimer because it's such an original original concept inception and the execution of that is just perfect. <laughs> Mm. i even think i gave inception 10 out of 10 as well mm. so yeah i think what i'll do yeah. what i'll do is i'll i'll put my nolan list and then i'll make an instagram post out of it as well <laughs>
1: mm. that sounds good yeah, but yeah let's wrap it
0: uh, up yeah, let's wrap it up we will um continue the podcast uh, perhaps with uh Oh, sorry we'll continue with jc at some point we'll decide on like what that is maybe if people mm. have suggestions on what jc would what you would want jc to be a part of then throw that in the comment section or the dms people love dming it's crazy so can't you just put it in the comments
1: you should make it to say deny dm to go put it in, in the, the comments. comment section yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah um and uh we'll we're going to be doing a review and recap on mission impossible um Uh, in the next couple of days i know it's a little bit backwards mission impossible came out two weeks ago but tony um who is a regular podcaster here um he really wants to do mission impossible and he's not seeing it until today um and i think we're going to review and recap it on monday or sometime like that um a review and recap for barbie will come out in a couple of days i saw that last night um and uh yeah i think that's all from the Cool podcast for now All right, all right, all right. We will catch you guys soon. JC, good to see you again, and we'll catch you soon.
1: Peace out.